I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to LiveWire, everybody. I'm Luke Burbank. How's it going? We have a totally unique episode of the show for you this week. Here's what happened. Uh, A couple weeks ago, our executive producer got a call from some folks at an organization called Lampedusa. Lampedusa is a group that raises money for refugees around the world. Um, It's named for an Italian island that has had a lot of refugees show up because of its proximity to um, Northern Africa. So anyway, these Lampedusa folks, they mentioned that they had put together this benefit concert that was going to be traveling around the country. It was going to have all these amazing performers, people like Brandy Carlisle, Patty Griffin, Dave Matthews, Steve Earle, among others. And they asked us if we would be interested in maybe doing an interview with one of these performers, probably from a recording booth somewhere. And we were intrigued. We were thinking about doing it. But then we looked at their tour calendar and we realized they were coming to have the concert in Portland, which is where we do Livewire from. So we got this idea. We asked the Lampedusa folks if it would be okay if we just went backstage at the Aladdin Theater where this was going to be happening. And we set up a little like makeshift recording booth. And then we would just try to grab these, I'm going to be honest, like pretty famous singers as they were on their way back and forth from soundcheck. And surprisingly, the Lampedusa folks said, sure, come on down. So that is precisely what we did. And this hour, we've got those conversations that we recorded backstage for you. It's going to be fascinating. How do I know? Because I was there when the conversations occurred. And let me tell you, it was interesting stuff. Here's how we're going to kick things off. With a true legend of country music. None other than Emmy Lou Harris. Over the past half century, if you can believe it's been that long, Emmy Lou has been delighting fans all over the world. She's won like 13 Grammys. She's 
been inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. But when she sat down with us backstage at the Aladdin Theater, she explained that there's actually still one musical accomplishment, one honor that still eludes her. They still don't play me in the truck stops. I don't know why. You've or got in to Cracker Barrel. You just cannot. Now, Whole Foods, I'll hear myself in Whole Foods, but not in Cracker Barrel. I've still got that final frontier ahead of me. I know. The Flying J. <laughs> yeah. Do you no, think uh, there's a concerted, is there a concerted <laughs> effort to keep Emmylou Harris no, out no, of no, no, no. certain institutions? It's just something that I thought about at my last visit to Cracker Barrel, which I love, by the way. I'll so you like Cracker Barrel, <laughs> but you were in there and you were reflecting on the fact that you're not hearing Emmylou Harris. No, there. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been playing country music for years. You know, when you're lucky enough to make your living doing something that you love, you, you just want to be able to give back. And, and of course, in my own community, uh, uh, I have my own animal rescue. I'm very much, I suppose that's my, my, my primary passion is animal rescue. But we, we need to rescue people, too. <laughs> you grew up in a military family, right? Yeah, my father was a, a career Marine for 30 years. And yes. he was a prisoner of war in Korea? In Korea for 16 months. He was shot down shortly after he got there. Um, I don't know if you follow this stuff, but, you know, there's been a lot in the news about um, about the NFL and players speaking out against yeah. institutional racism in this right. country as it relates to the right. national anthem and the flag. And a lot of people, I think, have conflated th these protests with a protest against military service or yeah. sacrifice. Do you have a thought on that, having grown up in the family you grew up in? That's a, a difficult question because I honored... My parents are my heroes, uh, and I had difficulty uh, being active against the Vietnam War because my father served in World War II and the Vietnam War, and he was sent to Japan to do a tour of duty during Vietnam. I, I respect the players, right? And, I, and there was that one player who knelt and put his hand over his heart. And I think that kind of, it, it put it all into perspective. We love our country, but it is a work in progress. And the first thing we have to do is acknowledge when we get things wrong and, and when there are problems that we have to fix. But our right to protest uh, and is, is sacrosanct in this country. So, Did um, you start to develop what I think people think of as being a fairly progressive worldview? First of all, would you say, would that be an accurate way to describe your politics? What and how is that? A well, worldview? I mean, that, that, that you seem to sort of try to look out for humankind um, well, well, when, yeah. when given a chance. Oh, I think, I think most people do. I think most people have a, a, a chip for compassion in them. That's very powerful. I, I, I think they do. And we get numbed sometimes by a feeling of helplessness because there's so many things going on in the world uh, that, that we know need fixing. But I, I don't see how we can live in the world as it is today and think that we can isolate ourselves from every... Because there are things in the world that are going to come and bite us. You know, whether we... You know, no matter how many layers we put around ourselves... I mean, I think it's best to uh, to to approach it from a humanitarian, compassionate way, um, but but if not, at least try to look at it in practical terms and see, you know, what the um, consequences of doing nothing or of being a part of the problem are. 
I, I guess I'm wondering, uh, you know, you, you grew up in this military family. I know that you kind of knocked around New York and other places as you were, you know, learning your craft. And was that where you sort of picked up a, a worldview? I mean, how did you become Emmylou Harris, who we think of well, now as no, a very socially conscious person? Do you remember the 60s? I mean, remember, <clears throat> that wasn't that long ago. There was a point where we really thought that we could change the world. And all of us who, yeah. who witnessed, I wasn't at Woodstock, but, you know, I was on my way there. <laughs> I just couldn't get close. <laughs> You hit traffic? Uh, no, I got married. <laughs> That's like the world's biggest traffic jam. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, you know, we we believed. I mean, and, and the Imagine came out of that. You know, the, the, the song Imagine, it's a, it, it's a secular prayer, really is, for the world and for humankind. Um, I, I, you know, we may never get there, but, you know, don't we have to at least lean toward the light a little bit. There's nothing more satisfying than the opportunity to feel that you've actually made a difference for someone, um, even if it's just little acts of kindness. So, uh, you know, who knows? I was raised by two people who were extraordinarily loving and kind to each other. Uh, uh, my father was a, a, a you know, career Marine, but he was a, he was a good father. He was a good son. He was a good neighbor. He believed in fairness. Uh, I saw their brilliant marriage of two people who respected and loved each other. I mean, uh, whoever I am came from the seeds of that, you know? And, um, so I was very lucky. I didn't have to overcome uh, the dysfunctional family, that apparently everybody says they have. I came from the functional family. You were the one. I was the one. It was my family. And um, so I, I've been blessed in every aspect of my life. And and so I, I want to give back. And, uh, of course, I have the great satisfaction, too, of having my own little dog rescue, which is very small. But and it's one dog at a time that would normally have probably been euthanized, and and we we find homes for it. So on a microcosm level, I'm able to do that on a day to day basis, just out of where I live, you know, in my my particular home in my particular spot on this earth. And so being able to um, get out and become a part of something globally, you know, I, I'm happy to be here. What do you think? You've won, I think, around 13 Grammys. Uh, you're in the Country Music Hall of Fame. What do you think has has made you um, so successful in this in this business? What sort of do you have a special talent or a personality trait? What has served you well doing this all these Resilience. years? Resilience, and I don't know how to do anything else, so I have no choice. <laughs> what is your favorite song that you're playing right now? Uh, I don't really have a favorite, although recently, you know, I'm in the middle of a tour and, um, I, I've started doing that, that old 60s song, uh, Abraham, Martin and John. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, of course. Because I think we're, 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 we're longing for some kind of leadership right now as Americans. And of course it, it's nostalgic for me because it was, you know, it came out when I was a teenager and the sixties and that brings it all back. And, and it was terribly, I mean, I remember everything. I remember the Kennedy assassination. I remember where I was, the news about Bobby Kennedy and, and Martin Luther King. And we really thought that it was the end of the world, but you see, it's not. 
Is that maybe where some of your optimism comes here in 2017? I think I'm just uh, naturally optimistic, but but with a uh, just a nice, healthy uh, hint of cynicism. I think it's kind of important to have both, but I, you lean a little more toward the optimism. That is the legendary and, like, shockingly down-to-earth Emmy Lou Harris, right here on LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week, we are bringing you a series of backstage conversations recorded at the Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon. And coming up after the break, Dave Matthews. Yeah, that Dave Matthews. One of the most successful American musicians in decades. Talks about what it's like to be on stage when everything starts to go very wrong. You know, if I was going to be complete honest, I might just throw my guitar down and, you know, go running off screaming. So that's not, for me, I don't consider that an option. Don't go anywhere. That is coming up on Livewire from PRI. Livewire gets support from Fully. Hey, do you sit motionless behind a desk all day? I know. It's not great, right? It's why everybody these days is getting those standing desks, because your body is meant to move, and no amount of after-work yoga and downward dogging and cross-fitting or whatever you do can undo the damage of being at your desk all day. That is where Fully comes in. Based in Portland, Oregon, they make and sell desks and chairs that have changed my life. Because right now, I'm actually sitting on a TikTok stool as I record this. And my body is engaged, and the blood is flowing, and I am so creative. Can't you just hear it in my voice how creative I am? They're also the folks responsible for the Jarvis sit-stand desk that I use when I am hosting Livewire at the Alberta Rose Theater. And they are the exclusive U.S. carrier of the Capisco chair that I also use when I am hosting the show. Listen. I'm not telling you not to do yoga. I'm not even telling you not to wear yoga pants. Also, say namaste if you want. I'm just saying, you don't have to do your body in by sitting still all day in a traditional chair in front of a traditional desk. Head over to fully.com slash livewire to find out about all the cool stuff they're doing. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. Okay, this week... We set up two microphones on a coffee table in the very creaky, it turns out, backstage area of the Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon. We were there because a bunch of amazing musicians were all getting together to raise money for an organization called Lampedusa, which helps out refugees. By the way, the recent estimate is that there's something like 65 million refugees worldwide. So this is a crisis that needs everybody's attention. Uh, One of the people giving some attention to it 
uh, is none other than Dave Matthews. Now, you got to understand something about the career of Dave Matthews. For the period of about a decade, his band sold more tickets and made more money than any other band in North America. Like, they would sell out these huge venues for an entire weekend, and thousands and thousands of people would come just to see them. Like, they're all there for the Dave Matthews Band. It's, it's amazing, actually. So when I sat down backstage with Dave Matthews at the Aladdin Theater, I was wondering what his mental preparation is uh, for something like this, where there's like seven or 800 people that he'd be playing for in just a couple of hours. I think playing in this situation is sort of, for me, because I don't play like this very often, is incredibly liberating and I feel very vulnerable, but at the same time, very safe. Because it doesn't matter if I turn things upside down or I squeak because it's just me. And I'm also with these people that I think that are all sort of my, some of my heroes, musical heroes. Um, when I play with a band, it's a different experience because it's like a machine and there's a great deal of love in it, but the love has taken a lot of time. And it's like juggling together. It's like playing, a, it's almost in some ways it shares something with a sports team. You know, it's like this, it's, it's, uh, there's a knowledge of what everyone is capable of. And I know how carefully my drummer listens to me. I know who is going to follow me if I do this. And I know who I can follow. And so it's much more of, of an organized chaos. And when we're at our best, it is uh, an elating sense of power and belonging. And when we're not communicating, it is a deep and dreadful nightmare. And yet you're up there on stage mm. in the midst of a deep and dreadful nightmare, trying to stay joyous and trying to give everybody their money's worth. Like, how do you keep well, those two thoughts in your head at the same time? Well, humbly in some ways, but even on a hard night, I know what I'm serving and that's an, an audience, you know, and I want to be honest, but I, you know, if I was going to be complete honest, I might just throw my guitar down and, you know, go running off screaming. So that's not, for me, I don't consider that an option. So if I feel like I have, like I'm tied down by whatever my own brain or whatever it is or, or miscommunications, that doesn't stop the fact that my first responsibility is to do as much as I can to have people leave thinking, that was an that was an, an emotional, amazing, uplifting experience. Because there's enough darkness in the world that I don't need to come out there and dump it on everybody. If I have a little bit, just because I have a microphone, whatever the song or whatever the topic, I just have to give um, everything I can to the audience. Um, the organization that you're all here donating your time for is an organization that helps refugees. You obviously did not grow up as a refugee, but you did move around a lot as a kid. Um, did that in any way make its way into your music or your approach to life, just being in different places, living in South Africa, living in the U.S., living in the U.K.? Yeah, I certainly think the way that I write music and the way I play music is, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm just imitating things I've heard. Um, it's just how maybe the how I play them may, may not 
look that way. But for me, everything I've heard, it sort of contributes to what I make. But I think traveling around, if I've done, uh, if that's done anything to me is, is, is sort of reassuring to think that people are essentially the same wherever you go. And by that, I mean, everybody wants to feel a sense of security. Everyone wants to feel a sense of belonging. And that doesn't need to be to a large group. It doesn't need to be to a fashion. It, just a sense of belonging, even in a place. And everyone needs to feel that they have space. Just a, even if it's the tiniest amount of space, but that they have space to exist. And so, and it's a common thing. And we all want joy and we all want those, those things. But I think that one of the things that I'm confident of is that of the 65 million people that are displaced in the world, just a little bit less than 65 million of those people are good people. And that we should assume that about all of them. And that the people that have a place in the world and the people that have a home, uh, like, like us, need those people. Because the more people that we have around us that belong, the more people that can make a better world. That's Dave Matthews of the Dave Matthews Band, right here on Livewire. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week, we are talking to some amazing musicians who would all come through Portland, Oregon, in support of an amazing organization. Uh, the organization is called Lampedusa. It's named for an Italian island. Just Google it. It'll all explain itself. But what Lampedusa does is they work to improve the lives of refugees around the world. Earlier, we talked to Dave Matthews. Uh, we also talked to Emmy Lou Harris, who I found out all her friends call Emmy. Uh, anyway, shortly after Emmy had left our little makeshift recording area, we were able to talk to none other than Patty Griffin. Smile on your face. I live on now, Patty grew up one of seven kids in Maine, and she bought her first guitar when she was 16. It cost all of 50 bucks, and it turned out to be money well spent because Patty turned out to be a rare, albeit shy, talent. Uh, she's won a Grammy. She's had all kinds of musical success, and in turn, she's used that platform to support causes that she believes in, like Lampedusa which is how she ended up sitting on a slightly ratty couch with me backstage at the Aladdin Theater talking about refugees. 
I come from uh, immigrant grandparents, as so many of us do in this country, and it's personal to me. I, I think that without the immigrants, I don't think the United States would be a very interesting place to live. You know, poor people have... They know how to improvise and they got great ideas. And um, clearly our government isn't interested at the moment in um, doing what all that can be done to help with the situation on the globe. But if, if it isn't done, what will come from 65 million plus people without a home on the globe, wandering this planet with nobody giving a damn? It, it, it will continue on for many, many, many generations if we don't deal with this. You were one of seven kids? Yeah. I was too. <laughs> what number? I'm the oldest and you're the youngest? I'm seven, yeah. That's a lot, right? You've got. Yeah, it was a lot. Well, my mom had ours in seven years too. So she had. She That's started, Irish twins. She did. She had Irish twins. God bless her. Yeah. Wow. So she was busy. And uh, I think it was great for me. I got left to my own devices a lot and sort of created my own little world and doing what I want to do. No one was paying attention. So <laughs> I ended up doing this. Did that drive you towards uh, like artistic stuff and music and things like that? Um, I think so. I think that's in my DNA. I think my mom was a really great just singer, but not professionally. And, and her mom is a great singer and just sort of passed down through there. Uh, world and um, and then I'm half Irish and that's just all about music, right? So I think that it just kind of yeah showed up. But I read that you, as a you know teenager, maybe you weren't thinking about trying to have a music career. But then I, I read that in your twenties you started like playing in coffee shops in Boston and things like that. Mm -hmm. I was really really shy, and uh, I had been told along the way that I could sing, but I don't carry a lot of natural confidence. I, that may be from being an immigrant, you know, like second generation American. I think that, you know, I come from people who are from humble beginnings and you stay humble and you try to get a job. <laughs> and so I think doing this is something I, I, I had a really big struggle in my twenties trying to just accept that this is what I could do and it was okay to do. Because so, of shyness or because of not feeling like it was a legitimate line of work? Shyness, um, not feeling like it was a legitimate line of work, possibly from my family background. And um, not really having anything to say yet. I think that, that when I got a little older, the songs became a little more interesting. So that's part of it, too. You practice that songwriting and then suddenly something inhabits the song. It took um, a while for that, to, for me to, to happen. When did it start to feel like it could be um, something that you really did? You started getting attention from the record industry or what was the kind of breakthrough moment for you? If it I, even happened that way. Um, I was about 29 years old and I had been married and my marriage kind of fell apart. I separated from my husband. Well, now you had something to write about. <laughs> well, that's true. But I also recognized when certain things happen in your life, you, you realize you have to be yourself and you have to do what you want to do. It's almost like coming out. Yeah, I want to be a musician. You know, I'm just going to do this. <laughs> Everybody calm down. Um, what turned into my first record was me making demos. There's a song uh, off of there, um, which like really resonated with me growing up with a lot of kids and not a lot of money. Um, Poor Man's House. I was mm -hmm. wondering, was that autobiographical? 
Yeah. You know, both of my parents wrote poetry and I didn't know that. I kind of snuck a peek at um, their poetry at one point in my 20s and got in trouble for it. But uh, one of the lines from my mother's poems was a, a line about my father having torn up all of the daylilies in front of her house. She will absolutely kill me if she ever hears this. But uh, but she said that Larry Larry pulled up all the daylilies in front of the house. Because she He thinks it makes it look like a poor man's house. And I, I know what she's talking about. I think you, when you raised poor and there's discrimination that happens, you try to sort of always hide it. And I think my father in particular grew up with discrimination for being poor. And my mother too, but my father was Irish in Boston in the 20s and 30s. And that was a difficult time. So anyway, it sort of sprung out of that story. Were your parents pretty blown away by your musical success when you, you know, started to be a real professional musician and there you are, you know, performing for the world, you've won a Grammy. I mean, you've done a lot of things. Was that impressive to them? If they, they, they keep it to themselves for the most part, they give me a little bit of encouragement here and there, but they never really said, yay, we're so excited for you. I can tell they are, but it's not in their nature to be exuberant about that. That sort is of the thing. most interesting kind of parent. And I feel like I come from a similar family where it's very loving and very supportive, but also, you know, I threw out the first pitch at a major league baseball game and my mom wasn't going to come because she worked at Costco and she had to do the samples. And she was like, I got to break down the pierogi station. It's really time consuming. I'm probably not going to be able to make it. And it really keeps you, yeah, keeps you kind of hungry. And you know what? It, she's right. <laughs> it's just a gig. It's just a gig. It's your gig. And, and it's a, it's a great gig, but everybody's got a gig. The guy that picks up the trash, he's doing, he's kicking but on his gig and no one's patting him on the shoulder for that. And I think that it's an equalizer having that attitude. And I'm glad that I was raised that way. Although I could have used a little bit more encouragement here and there. Do you feel like, do you feel like, (laughs) do you feel at this point with all the success you've had uh, that you're less shy or do you, is there still some 22 year old part of you that thinks you're going to be found out? Um, well, I'm getting older. Thank God. One of the things that comes with getting older is not giving a damn what people think. Um, that's lovely. I think I'm always going to be a shy person. You know, I I don't, I can't sit here and not feel like a knots and a little knot in my stomach. You know what I mean? That's just being, I think some people are just born shy. That's me. That's Patty Griffin here on Livewire. If you'd like to catch her and the rest of this Lampedusa tour, it is not too late, my friends. They're going to be in El Paso on October 14th at the Abraham Chavez Theater. 
and they will be in Dallas at the Majestic on October 15th. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who partners with farmers to help ensure no meat in store has added hormones or antibiotics. Because the words mystery and meat don't need to apply to this week's lunch. Whole Foods Market. We believe in real food. Well, hello there, semi-mysterious Livewire listener. Uh, We've got a very basic five-question survey on our website right now that we would very much appreciate you taking. It takes literally 15 seconds. And uh, we want to know a little bit more about you. We want to find out who's listening to the show, what you guys like, what you don't like. We promise it will not be stalkerish. But seriously, filling out the survey will help us secure sponsorship. It'll help us with grant funding, uh, which will let us keep doing the show, which is a really important part of what we do. Continuing to do the show, that is. Here's how you help out. Head over to livewireradio.org backslash podcast and click on the big red survey button at the top of the page. You cannot miss it. It's the red button that says survey. Uh, In doing so, you're going to be automatically entered to win a Livewire totes bag, which is, of course, a totes bag that actually says totes on it. Be the envy of all your friends. Oh, and also, you'll win a Livewire t-shirt in the totes bag. Thank you so much for helping us out. Again, head on over to livewireradio.org backslash podcast and help us with the survey. It will take less time to take the survey than I just took telling you about the survey. This is Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. Okay. On this show, I know that I spend a fair amount of time recounting all of the trouble I got into in my younger days. And let's be honest, my not-so-younger days. But my life has nothing on Steve Earle's. Stephen Fane Earle was born in Fort Monroe, Virginia. But he grew up in San Antonio. And he left high school early for Nashville, seeking work as a musician. And and thanks to being super talented, he actually found it. But he also found a lot of trouble. Trouble with drugs, trouble with alcohol. He had seven marriages. Steve Earle packed a lot of living into his 62 years. And throughout it all, he's been very openly political, even at times when it probably was hurting his career. He stood up for unions. He opposed the death penalty. He identifies as a pacifist. Lots of things that you might not see as a natural fit with country music. Something else surprising about Steve Earle, who grew up in the South, he's actually a huge New York Yankees fan. And so after his sound check at the Aladdin Theater in Portland, where we had set up a little backstage recording booth, we had to send somebody to go grab him off the tour bus because he was out there trying to find a TV so he could watch the baseball game. Anyway, we finally corralled him into our recording area, and we got down to talking. When you were were starting out making music, um, what were your aspirations? To be able to make a living uh, playing music? To get girls, originally. I mean, I I was in Texas, and I didn't play football, so... You know, that's, that's, it was really that simple at first. But then when I actually got my hands on a guitar, it was kind of over. 
but you bounced around a little bit if I read right, right? Like you 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 dropped out of high school and you moved, is that right? To kind of I dropped of out of high school and went to Houston and um I met Towns Van Zant and kind of followed him around Texas for a while. And then I figured out he wasn't gonna ever lie anywhere. And I could see him a lot of places and I went on to Nashville when I was nineteen. And what was Nashville like for you back in those days? What were you doing? Writing music? Yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I had a publishing deal before I was 20. And, um, you know, I, I, everybody thought I'd have a record deal but by the time I was 21. But I just, there was, the inmates were sort of in charge of the asylum when I got there and, and the window closed, you know, the powers that be sort of reeled things back in and got them back under control. So I didn't quite get a record deal on time. Patty Griffin was talking to us and saying how, uh, she felt like when she was young, she didn't have enough to write about. She hadn't lived enough. Had you lived enough by 19 or 20 to really write? Yeah. Stuff? When I was 20 years old, I wrote some songs I still do. I wrote Tom Ames Prayer when I was 20 and I wrote Ben McCullough when I was 20. Really? But I did it by, you know, making up stories that were completely and totally, you know, out of thin air, you know. Um, that then, seems to be an argument against this idea that if it's not lived experience, it won't feel authentic. I've never bought the idea that you had to go out and abuse yourself in order to write. I never believed that. Even when I was abusing myself, I just did that because I did it. It didn't, you know, it doesn't make sense that you do something that dulls your wits and that you're going to be able to, to do really hard mental work better. That just, that never made sense to me. So I never, I never bought that for a second. Do you feel like your very public uh, activism for causes that, that you value uh, do you think that that has um, impacted your career at all? Sure, sure. It's cost me record sales, ticket sales, sure. But I'm okay with that. I you don't have why. any dark nights where you think, oh, man, I could have just, just maybe moved a couple million more units and set myself up for I good. I don't think like that. I, I think I, I met Townsend Zant when I was 17 years old, and I realized I'd met somebody that was making art for the sake of art and didn't really think about the money part of it. I've made a lot of money, and I spent and lost most of it, and and um, I got married too much to keep any money, and... You know, I still got a small child, and he has autism, and that's expensive. And, and uh, you know, I'm not going to ever be able to retire. If, if I, It's a good thing I don't really want to. But, uh, you know, I wish I could be home with him more at this point in my life. But um, I do all the other stuff that I do just kind of keep from going to hell because I've managed to make an embarrassing amount of money for a borderline Marxist doing something I really love doing. And, and you know, I think you have to go out of your way to try to put something back when that's the case. And this is part of that, I would assume. Absolutely. Absolutely. How did you um, end up starring on the TV show The Wire? David Simon's a fan. He's a big music fan. And he he had um, another series, a mini series called The Corner before yeah, The Wire. And he used a song of mine as the theme. And then um, when he was writing The Wire and came up with the idea of, of who was going to be this guy that sponsored Bubbles when Bubbles tried to get clean. He just got the idea that maybe I could play this character. And we'd never met. Uh, he called my manager, and, and um, I read for it on, in a recording studio. Then, um, Were you nervous at all to, to oh, do that? I was that? terrified. I was terrified, yeah. But it didn't really require any acting because I was playing a redneck recovering addict. So I was doing something I did all the time as a matter of life and death. I was the, my first scene in The Wire, I'm, I'm, I'm the speaker in a meeting, and I'd done that. You know, I'd been clean for, you know, eight years or something like that, you know. Um, 
you know, it's I'm recognized for it all, all around the world by people that never have bought one of my records. Right. And, I think a lot of people it was they thought I like this guy Steve Earle on this TV show. They didn't even know. No, 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 I didn't. Especially the white folks that I run into that recognize <laughs> me from. They don't listen to my records, so it's like you know. But I, I'm, I'm never forget I was speaking at the. It's, well, it's the detox at Bellevue in, in New York. And I was, you know, we speak in this room and it's the TV room. And these guys that just couldn't wait for the meeting to be over. They were in the meeting, but they were really waiting for the TV. And then we're, you know, I'm talking to another guy that came out and talked to me after the meeting when the meeting's over. And these guys get the TV and they turn it on. And by that time, you know, the wire was being rerun on BET. And I looked up and there I was on the screen. I said, I, I need to get out of here. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is going to get weird. They're going to so, think that you're like a, an actor who's been hired to come in. And oh, no, I'm walking down the street sometimes and a guy will yell at me across the street. Hey, man, thanks for helping out, bubs. It happens you know, on a fairly regular basis because there are some people that, that, that think television's real. Um, you're under no obligation to answer this question, but what is sobriety like for you? 23 years in versus 23 it's, days in. It's been harder the last few years than it probably has the whole time that I've been sober, but that's basically because of stuff that's been going on in my life. So, you know, but I still do the st stuff that I started out doing, which is going to meetings and calling my sponsor and, and sponsoring people is what saved my butt the last few years. And because if you sponsor people, then you can't, you can't go back out because then you go, ah, uh, They'll read about it in the paper. Because if I go back out, I'll be dead in a matter of days. And it's just like, that's where my disease left off. And that's what they told me of when I came in. That's why I went back out. It would be right back where it started again instantly. And I believe it, you know. So I don't want that blood on my hands of somebody reading that saying, oh, that see, this doesn't work and going back out. So I'm not, I'm not going I'm not going to do that. What do you hope your legacy is when you're all done with this? Um, my legacy is going to be... Uh, the Galway girl in Ireland, I know that much. And they won't remember me, but they'll remember the song. Um, How about you as a person, like when people talk about Steve? I don't know whether, you know, it matters what your legacy is as a person. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I operate on a handful of principles on a day-in, day-out basis, and I'm not sure they change that much when I'm dead. And that's the idea that your opinion of me is none of my damn business. I took a stroll on the old long walk of the day I, I, I met a little girl and we stopped to talk of a fine soft day I, And I asked your friend, what's a fella to do? Cause her hair is black and her eyes are blue And I knew right then, I've been taking a world And I saw till prom with a call that's Steve Earle, and this is Livewire. This week, coming to you mostly anyway from backstage at the Lampedusa concert, benefiting refugees as it stopped through Portland, Oregon. All right, coming up after the break, singer Brandi Carlisle on the pressures of fame that nearly ruined her voice. It's interesting when your name stops meaning just you anymore. That's when the butterflies came on. That's in a moment. This is Livewire from PRI. Hey, this week on Livewire, we'd like to thank some very special members. Of course, I'm talking about Jennifer Cruikshank of Portland, Oregon, and Christy Stagg of nearby Vancouver, Washington, just across the river. Support from members like Jennifer and Christy is a hugely important part 
of how we are able to make LiveWire week in and week out. So thank you, Jennifer and Christy, from the bottom of our hearts. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. This week, we're bringing you a series of conversations that we recorded on the same day backstage at the Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon. A bunch of amazing musicians had gotten together to raise money and to draw attention to an organization called Lampedusa, which supports refugees around the world, primarily through free education, which sadly is actually a rarity in a lot of places. Now, Brandi Carlisle got her musical education at a very early age. She grew up about an hour outside of Seattle in a family of musicians. It really breaks my heart to see a dear old friend go down to the worn out place again. And her first real gig was actually singing backup for a local Elvis impersonator. One of the little girls I sang at at the musical theater called the Northwest Grand Ole Opry, uh, Amber Lee, her dad was the Elvis impersonator, and I was learning harmonies from my brother, and I was teaching her some of them because, obviously, Elvis Presley had the greatest harmony singers in the world. And so I was able to kind of get a little summer job as a teenager singing backups for Elvis. Did you have a number where you felt like you really got to shine as the backup singer? Trilogy. Trilogy. I don't know if I don't even know that song. Oh yes, you do. The American Trilogy. Well, what? What's... Glory, glory, hallelujah. I guess I never knew it was called the American. His truth is marching on. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> wow. But it starts with "Hush, little baby, don't you cry." So it's the trilogy. How was this Elvis impersonator? Like, was it believable? I feel like he was one of the best. He won lots of awards and spent a lot of time in Vegas and. My parents would never let me go, but he was pretty fantastic. He wasn't the greatest dancer, but he really had the vocals down. And he did Roy Orbison, too, in the second set of the show. He would nail that as well. The real double threat. So Elvis for the first the, the first part of the show and then come back out as Roy Orbison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you nervous as a young kid performing? I mean, did you get butterflies or did it feel real natural to you? It felt really natural. I didn't really get... Butterflies until I was in my 20s, and that's when I started getting like a late stage fright. Really? Yeah. What What do you think brought it on? I think suddenly feeling the responsibility for other people in my band and realizing there were people I couldn't let down. Like Brandy Carlisle Inc. was starting to form in a way? Yeah. It was funny. I was just talking about this. It's interesting when your name stops meaning just you anymore. That's when the butterflies came on, when Brandy Carlisle meant also Tim and also Phil and also whoever was playing drums. How did you deal with the the late onset butterflies? It caused me a lot of vocal trouble because um, there's a, a vocal exercise I got really into called Melissa Cross, the Zen of Screaming, where basically the theory is that if you feel confident and comfortable with the note that you're about to sing, it can't injure you, even if it's a full-throated scream. But if you don't feel confident about the note that you're about to sing, you can tense and compensate in certain areas. It can injure you. So I think the nerves got me singing wonky for a little while. But it only took about four or five years for me to get past it and start finding ways to calm down that weren't whiskey. Because <laughs> that'll do a different kind of number on your throat, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's actually quite a lot safer than, than nerves. Really? Yeah. 
Are you having uh, fun getting to pal around with some of these legendary artists? And are there tips that you feel like you can pick up? I mean, you've been performing for a good while yourself. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I pal around with them as much as I just sort of stare at them awkwardly and, in, in, uh, you know, hope that they'll say hi to me and things like that. <laughs> no, it's really amazing to be included. And I definitely feel the most honored to be on stage, I think. It just being around and observing somebody like Emmylou Harris, do you learn about the music business and about the being a human business just from kind of being near that? Yeah, you know, every time I've talked to Emmylou, it's always been about some kind of activism, some kind of outreach, something that's important to her. And um, I really appreciate that kind of interaction. And then, of, of course, it's impossible for uh, her influence not to show vocally it's always been a part of how I sing and express myself. I mean, Harris is just in there. Well, the similarity seems to be too, that she has been throughout her career, really active in social causes. And I know that you have too yeah. stuff that's important to you. You raise money for it. You draw attention to it. You talk about it. Um, there are some people that feel like, uh, you know, musicians and athletes and people like, if you're not a politician, you should stay in your lane. Do you ever get that kind of feedback? And, and what do you say to that? Like to people that think, your job as a singer is to sing songs and to, to do that, but not to get involved in all these other causes. Yeah. I mean, I do get that. Of course, we all get that a lot. I mean, people think that artists are supposed to be there to entertain them and to give them respite from uh, global issues, difficult issues, and um, to only rally them together for things that are positive. And so you definitely feel a lot of pressure to dilute your message so that you can stay the entertainer. That's something I'm up against all the time. But it's not a sentiment that I agree with or believe in. So I've had to kind of power through it and overcome it in a lot of different instances. Because it's not that I feel that I've earned a platform like a preacher or anything. But I cease to be authentic or any good to anybody if I don't express my feelings and my beliefs. And if I don't engage within my activism. What's a favorite song uh, of yours right now that you're performing? Is there a song that you really look forward to when you're playing a show. Oh man, you know, I always sound so silly saying this, but it's always the story. I always love singing the story and never That's gets nice old. to hear because that's a huge hit for you and usually people when they have a huge hit, they immediately start hating the song. <laughs> I don't think it's ever a huge hit. Like that's the thing. I don't think I've ever had a hit, but the story was a victory to me when I was first told that I could sing it because it was written by one of my brothers, Phil. I'm in a band with yeah. the twins. And, um, when I met him, he had had that song and I, I said, you know, there's a song that you have called the story and I will just die if I don't get to sing it. And so he gave me permission to sing his most precious song. And I don't think I've ever stopped being grateful for that. I think that song was number one in Portugal. <laughs> you go, you're, you're exactly right. So don't say it wasn't a hit. <laughs> you're exactly right. That was a strange phenomenon in Portugal. What was it about the Portuguese that really vibed with that song? There's a couple things. Um, one of them is that it was in a really cool television commercial. The other one is that they are so emotional and outward. And the story is just loud. It's not holding back with its love. And um, I think they just kind of reacted to it. It would appear that this is a journey that you've been on for a lot of your life. You started out singing pretty young, mm -hmm. probably had dreams of a career in music, and, and now you've done it. Does it feel like you thought it was going to feel? Um, it feels like I hoped it was going to feel, and I always felt successful. I'm, people will tell you that like I felt like I was famous when I was 12 years old. Hmm. 
I would do my autograph and I would sing like karaoke and I would feel like I had always arrived in my mind. So everything that ever happened past like, you know, winning a karaoke contest when I was 13, I was just bonus. You know, as long as I was doing it and people were reacting and people would listen to me, I was really happy. So every time something happens, if I get a Grammy nomination, if a really special show sells out, if if I get to meet somebody that, you know, I really look up to, I'm just totally overwhelmed by it all the time and feel very normal in a very odd situation. What song did you sing at the karaoke contest? I used to love doing so many of them, but like, don't let the sun go down on me. The Elton oh John and George God, Michael dude. version. When he says, when George Michael says, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mr. Elton John, John. And the crowd, like, God, he's like, that like, makes me feel emotional yeah, when I hear that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It's like the most cool moment. I know. And it's like, as great, George Michael is one of the best singers like in the world ever. But when you hear Elton John's voice and that second, the don't discard me, when you yeah. hear him say, don't discard me, it's like, a mile wide. It's the thickest, most profoundly powerful voice. When it comes out of his mouth, you're just like, Oh my God, that's Elton John. And so I used to do that one. And I used to do, I love the drama. So I used to also do, um, <laughs> the show must go on by queen. Wow. Ambitious. My makeup may be fading, but my smile and a purple blazer. So I was like, so where gay man. Where were you performing these songs at as like I a mean, teenager? Like Eagles lodges and bars and like dive bars. And my parents were just like drink and like we would just sing karaoke. I mean, they would let you in. That doesn't sound totally legal. Or safe, but it happened. <laughs> and here you are today. Yeah. With the number one song in Portugal for yeah. at least a period of time. <laughs> See, like I don't have enough, no normal thing has happened to me as far as success goes. Everything's just a little left to center. Is it more fun that way in a way? Oh, yeah. It's really fun. All of these lines across my face Tell you the story of who I am So many stories where I've been And now But these stories don't mean anything When you've got no one to tell them to It's true I was made for you That's Brandy Carlisle. That's going to wrap things up this week on Livewire. Thank you so much to everybody who helped make this special episode possible including our guests, Emmylou Harris, Dave Matthews, Patty Griffin, Steve Earle, and Brandy Carlisle. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Whole Foods Market, and Fully. Special thanks this week to Gail Griffith, David Robinson, Jillian Santella, and Carolyn Rosenfeld. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. And Melanie Sevchenko is our assistant editor. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing director. And our operations manager is Tim Harkins. Additional funding by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Megan Woodard of Portland, Oregon, for her support. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to LiveWire Radio 
www.thepodcastnetwork.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.